Hello, and thanks for clicking. I should really do the introductory bit first. Uh, my name is Ancient Blogger, and you're listening to my early ventures into podcasting. I've done some others which you might have seen listed. I've done, I think, well, think about it, bees, uh, war elephants, prostitution, and some various other bits and bobs. So hopefully there'll be something there you might want to listen to as well. Um, I've also got a website, ancientblogger.com, and that's got articles, links to my other podcasts, my vlogs, which are on YouTube, Ancient Blogger again, and guess what? I'm on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger. Please come and say hello. I'm always always happy to have a chat. Now, following some much appreciated and quite frank feedback, I'm going to slow things down a bit because, well, one comment I had that my earlier podcasts did sound a bit like you were having <laughs> uh, facts machine gunned relentlessly into the side of your head. And that's really no way to have any kind of information delivered these days. So I'm going to be a bit more placid, but hopefully as informative. Now, as per the title, I thought I'd do a podcast on Amazons and women warriors in general. I'm shamelessly trying to jump on the Wonder Woman bandwagon, albeit a bit late. I think that given the fact that the film's over, this is possibly late to that bandwagon, uh, possibly ahead of the the, the new one. So I'm kind of early for the inevitable sequel for the next Wonder Woman film. Uh, to give a basic running order, I'll be talking briefly about Wonder Woman, uh, her links to the Amazons and the sort of myth bits that I find quite quite interesting. And uh, I'd say Amazons. Then I'll be looking at some uh, female warriors from antiquity that you might not have heard of. Uh, probably a few ones you might expect to be there that aren't. And I'll pick that one up as well. Anyway, if hopefully if that sounds good and amenable to you, then uh, we'll get started. Now, in order to avoid any charges of plagiarism, I haven't listened to any recent podcast on Amazons, but I did listen to a brilliant one on the creation and development of Wonder Woman. It's very much a kind of cultural comic book uh, viewpoint, and it can get a bit salacious at points, so if you've got any young ears that might want to listen to it, perhaps you should listen to it first. It's really interesting, though, very informative, um, looking at exactly how the the creator came about upon Wonder Woman, how the comic books were written, uh, how they were angled, and some of the themes and topics. The podcast is called Wizard and the Bruiser, and, well, it's called Wonder Woman. That's the episode I listen to. I, I really recommend it if you're a bit of a comic book fan. Now, I'm, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I thought I'd list some points of interest, or certainly stuff that I found interesting about how Wonder Woman came about from some of the stuff that I've read as well as the podcast. I listened to. Now, in short, the creator, William Marston, was a, a chap really quite ahead of his time. In the 1940s, he decided to create a superhero for comic books who was a woman, rather than a woman who was, well, a superhero in a man's world. And by that, I mean, you know, it wasn't a male version, as it were. It wasn't a Batgirl or Supergirl, uh, that kind of a thing. Uh, Marston was hugely influenced by the women in his life. That of his wife, I think her name was Elizabeth, uh, she was a, an eminent academic in her own right, and Olive Byrne, whose mother opened the first birth control centre in the US. It's a bit of a trivia. Both were really powerful, politically motivated women, and this really, I say rubbed off is probably the wrong word, but this really influenced Marston early on. That's why he decided to go along the lines of creating uh, a female super character, and then that's why he, he kind of dipped into the Amazon myth. Now, Marston added his own ideas as well, so it wasn't just the influence of the women around him. And this, is, this does sort of crystallise in some of the aspects of Wonder Woman's character. Uh, here's, a, here's a good example. She has a lasso of truth, which, uh, no idea. I mean, that's just a quite fantastic idea. Uh, I, then you find out that Marston 
was an early inventor or, or he was into the early development of of kind of truth devices um lie detecting machines way ahead of the polygraph way earlier than the polygraph rather but he was into that aspect as well so you've got that sort of thinking coming through in one of her pieces of kit now as with many comic book characters wonder woman has been reworked and reinvented a number of times but from the beginning and that's where i'm really looking for i think it's called the classical or golden age you see it with many comic book characters they get about 15,000 different origins, origin myths and every time they get redone and reworked someone else goes well actually this is how they were born I'm, I'm dealing from the beginning the real sort of genesis as it were now one of the pieces of kit and probably her famous pieces of kit would be the bracelets which she uses to deflect bullets um, pretty much everything I don't know if you've ever seen the 1970s TV show and yep there she was with those and just yeah, everyone seemed to be wanting to fire various guns uh, and she was always able to deflect them and in the film she's used them to create a concussive blast they're really her main piece of kit and these apparently were made indestructible according to the comic book by Aphrodite uh, Aphrodite is one of women's patron goddess and this is something I'll pick up on in a bit because I find this really quite curious uh, it gives a lot of lines into Marston's thinking and Marston's own personality and character because According to Greek myth, the Amazons uh, weren't, yeah, I think their patron god was, was Ares. Aphrodite wasn't really in there much. But she also gets, and this is an important point, she gets given these gifts. And if you're familiar with any kind of Greek myth, you'll know the hero always gets a nice piece of kit from a god, from a deity. They usually end up getting something given to them, usually to fulfill a particular quest. You think the Iliad, for example, is probably the most uh, one that immediately comes to mind when you get the gifts from Thetis. The bracelets, as well as being able to keep away mob bosses in the 1970s, they referred in the comic book, The Origins, to a period of submission where the Amazons were under the rule of Hercules. And earlier, I mentioned that Marston was all about bringing his own persona into Wonder Woman. You know, the bracelets uh, referred to a period in the, according to the comic book myth that was all about submission. Apparently, they were sort of uh, referred to a period where Hercules was in charge of the Amazons. And again, this is the comic book. This isn't the, the sort of classical Greek myth. This is the comic book version. And this is pretty much Marston, because Marston was, and I, I thought, how can I phrase this correctly? Along with the, with the lasso of truth, there is an element within Wonder Woman of binding. And um, it was a, shall we say, a, a practice amongst consenting adults uh, that involves restraint, uh, consensual restraint. I'll, I'll leave that one with you there. If you want to listen more about that particular part to him, you can find that in the podcast I, <laughs> I spoke about earlier. And it does go quite into it. it it's not, it's, it's uh, informative rather than just titillation. It, it, again, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. Now, I'll move swiftly on now to pun intended, the Sandals of Hermes is something again in the comic book that I don't think you see much in the film and I'm pretty sure you don't see it much with Linda Carter in the 70s and they gave her the, well you can probably guess, super speed. The, the creation myth I always find really interesting with any character, be it mythic, comic book or, or whatnot and, and Wonder Woman's is particularly so. Uh, Wonder Woman was, her mother Hippolyta created her from clay and Aphrodite breathed life into her. And the whole 
being created from clay thing is something you see in a numerous uh, different religions. You see it, funny enough, in, our, in the Bible. Uh, Adam was created from dust. You see it in Pandora in the Greek myth. I think there's some in Sumerian mythology uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. It, it's a pretty much a, a consistent thing. Why was Aphrodite involved? And I'm not quite sure. I, I, I went through it and I've, I've got some ideas and there's actually a comment from Marston as to why he gave her a, uh, a sort of Aphrodite background. And I'll, I'll put that in there as well. But I just want to go over some, some thoughts about that. So perhaps it was easier to sell Wonder Woman uh, as a woman with no father and therefore she had no male influence. But locating Wonder Woman in this way isn't something the Greeks would have been particularly alien to. Now, consider Athena, a woman whose chastity and female aspect was, was very central, yet she functioned really quite within the male space. She was a fighter, and she was a thinker, she was an intellect, it, she was a judge. If you read Aeschylus, if you read the Oresteia, you might know that uh, she becomes a judge, and progenitors, as it were, of the Athenian law courts. So she was a woman who involved herself very much in the, in the sort of male sphere. But Athena, even though she did have a mother, was sort of reclaimed through myth as, as a man, or in, very much in the male space, because her father Zeus, she was born from Zeus's head. There's no other way of getting around it. There's some really quite nice, I think there's a, a vase where you see a little mini Athena sort of jumping out of his head. And this is because he's eaten, or he's swallowed her mother, who, who he changed into a fly, because that's what you do. If you're a Greek god, that's the sort of thing that you just, well, I suppose they didn't have Netflix. They, uh, they had to come by other, other means of fun. Even though Athena was female, there's that part that says, you know what? She had a male birth and therefore she's, you know, she's kind of one of the boys. And I do wonder if the reverse of that is, is in some way employed here. I'm going to now look at some of the other contenders. I think there's, there's, because if you weren't going to create, if you weren't going to have Aphrodite and you're going to say, right, we need a, a, a female we need a female deity to be a kind of force behind one with Wonder Woman. Who might you choose? Well, here we go. Okay, I've uh, I've, I've already mentioned Athena, and she does in fact tick quite a few boxes. She's, she's great with a spear, so she's good um, in the military context, and she's very intelligent. But I think she's a bit too mainstream, and I'm just warding off any kind of hipstrap accusations here. But Athena was the patron deity of Athens, and the Amazons were about as non-Greek as you could get. Where Athens was a place where men were men. Women certainly knew their place. They were second-class citizens. You can't really have, therefore, a patron deity associated with Athens and that social structure, and also in charge of or behind as an influence from the Amazons, because the Amazons are, again, very anti-Athens. Um, next one up, Hera. She's largely involved in marriage, family, pretty much not what you're looking for if you want to be someone behind the Amazons. Um, Artemis, and I thought Artemis would have been a strong shout. Artemis is the virgin goddess of hunting, so you've got the martial skills there. But, uh, I don't know, perhaps not, though. Perhaps, again, she's a bit too girl next door. Perhaps she's a bit too mainstream. She was associated in Athens a lot with, with womanhood, with the stages of womanhood. They had the, the I think it was the uh, Brorian, um, the bears of Artemis, which were effectively... Um, the girls, little girls, would uh, dress up and have a little festival of their own, which is quite cool. Uh, so we really haven't, we're not left with a great deal of other options. But then it's still, why would you choose Aphrodite? Because, well, if you, if you know anything about Aphrodite, you know she's not a fighter. And she's got a huge cross against her name when it comes to fighting, which is something that, funny enough, Wonder Woman is involved with a fair amount. 
in the Iliad. If you've read the Iliad, you'll know she's wounded by Diomedes. Who's, and when she uh, flies away after having a handcart, she's there's a brilliant scene where she gets back to to Olympia, uh, sorry Olympus, and she's complaining to Zeus, and she's sitting with her mum, and because oh, in the Iliad she's got a, her, the creation myth that's alluded to is that she has a mother, and we'll see that that isn't necessarily the case in other creation myths. Aphrodite's sat there, sobbing away, complaining. And Zeus does the most fantastic bit of male patronising that you'll find in the Iliad when he just basically says, this isn't good for you, war's not where you should be, you need to be with the fluffy things, nice bunnies, that kind of... It, yeah, it is worth reading. I, I, I read through it to double-check yesterday, and I did find it quite funny. But then I had been drinking a lot of tea. She's also, and again, if you've read the Iliad, you might remember this, uh, she gets a bit of a slap from Athena when she starts sort of involving herself on the battlefield. So again, this is not a deity associated in any way with kind of martial skill. She's not going to turn up. She's not like you to a roundhouse kick or any kind of Chuck Norris action. She's more into other ways of achieving her goals. And I think this is possibly why Marston chose her. Marston thought of Wonder Woman as someone who, and he, I think he, he made a comment about this in, a, in an interview, he saw Wonder Woman as a, someone who was an agent of change, and that change was through a supreme power of love, understanding, all of the kind of, I suppose you might want to say soft skills, the emotional intelligence, that sort of a thing, rather than, I'm just going to kick down the front door and go full A-team on you, which is quite ironic given that Aphrodite is possibly one of the most divisive deities you can come across. She's... I. I did a bit of work on her when I studied, and she is someone who you do not want to get on the right side of, or the wrong side of, or really anywhere near. Okay, so I've, I've probably spoken a bit too much on my thoughts as to why Aphrodite was used. Stumbled across it, across it, and thought, hey, it's possibly worth having a little think about, making some notes on. You might completely disagree with me, you might completely agree with me, you might be asking, you've just had too much tea or coffee. Uh, I'd agree that it's probably all of those. Um, but the thing that I did, I genuinely found almost ironic, I suppose it is an irony really, is that the fact that Marston took the idea of the Amazon and, and used it to promote equality, or certainly the idea that women were equal in many regards, and gave this traction in the form of a comic book character that women, young girls might read and, and say, we can do this too, or we could do something like it in a different way. It was sort of involving a female in a male space, which was comic books of that time. Yet the Amazons, as the classical Greeks understood them, were quite the opposite. Amazons, the ancient Greeks, were, were strange, curious, really the other, where Greeks had male-dominated societies, the Amazons were female-dominated societies, where Greeks fought with infantry, the Amazons fought on horseback with bow and arrow. They were pretty much the binary opposite of the ideal Greek society. Now here, as I mentioned, the irony it is the irony. The Amazons, through the character of Wonder Woman, set about giving women space in a comic book world, which, as I said, was largely male-dominated, or superhero aspect was certainly largely male-dominated. But in ancient Greece, the same group of women acted as a buttress to validate the worldview, which they were now being used to challenge. Back in the day, the Amazons were there to show that male society and male-dominated society was needed, because this is what happens when you have all women in charge, and yet the Amazons in the 20th century 
were being used through, you know, a comic book character to promote feminism, if you want to call it that. I'm not confident using the term because I'm, I imagine someone will say, that's not feminism, that's, it might, it may or may not be. Either way, it was pushing for more equality for women, so I, I assume it must be in, in some regard. But anyway, uh, I need something to move this away from being or sounding a bit like a bad six-form sociology essay. And I, I think I've got the piece of trivia to really change the mood. It's something I read in an article co-written by Amazon expert Adrian Mayer. She's brilliant. If you've got the chance, she's on Twitter. You read her books such as uh, Mythodates, The Poison King, which I read as brilliant. She did one on, I think, Poison Arrows, Scorpion Bombs. Um, and she's recently written a book on Amazons, which annoyingly I've yet to read. I, I need to buy it and read it. Um, and I'll probably find loads of stuff I should have put on here. So I'm not going to buy it. In fact, I'm going to deliberately avoid that book. She actually verified this to me because I saw this in an article and I, I, I tweeted and I said, you've got to, how, is this true? Is this true? And she got back to me very kindly and said, yeah, here's, here's the source. According to Hitler's physician, the Fuhrer had reoccurring nightmares about space Amazons. Yeah, space Amazons. Not just Amazons, space Amazons. Now, I don't know where to go with this one. Do I start considering the idea that what would space Amazons look like? Or... Do I go along with the fact that the leader of the Third Reich was terrified by um, semi-clad women on horseback? Uh, I'm just going to leave that one with you. I'm now going to move on a bit to the Amazons, as the ancient Greeks, or the Amazon involvement in it in classical Greek. And he, again, we'll start with an irony. Um, despite representing a lot of what Greek society wasn't, uh, the chaps of classical Athens couldn't get enough of Earth based Amazons. There are swathes of Amazons depicted in battle, both in relief sculpture and on vases. Following the Persian Wars of the early 5th century BC, the standard motif to represent the Persian victories is that of the Greeks versus the Amazons. But the, the idea of having the Greeks uh, fight the Amazons is a really prominent theme. And there's also another option, and there's always another idea, which is possibly more likely the outcome, more likely the reason. They might have just had Amazons fighting because the artist just thought, this is great. If you're an artist, oh, I've got a request, I've got an order. Oh, what are you gonna, what can I do? Well, we got, oh, it's going to be a vase where a guy fights another guy. Uh, if I'm lucky, I might do a satyr or something. Or, oh, can I do a centaur? Oh, no, it's two guys fighting each other. Yeah, okay, I, I've done loads of these. If you've got female figures, though, the, as an artist, that gives you a load more options. You can really show off. You can, you know, show the female form and what they're wearing, what they look like. It just gives you, um, as an artist, just a lot more, lot more many ways to display your craft, display your art, show what you're about. Now, these depictions seem to have really blow the hole in one fact that you might know about Amazons, or perhaps think you know, as it were. And I, I again, I came across this whilst doing my research notes on it. Amazons weren't probably named after the fact that they only had one breast. And I don't know if you know this, but that's often the thing that people say about Amazons. Apparently Amazon meant no breast or without breast or words to that effect. And the idea was they had a one of their breasts removed so they could draw the bow back further. In Greek art, never the case. The Greek art, the women are always or the Amazons are always depicted with as much as we can see, both breasts. So why the discrepancy? Why are we thinking that's one case when all the evidence points the other way? Again, it's, it's Adrian Mayer who saves the day 
possibly on horseback or on a spaceship. And she she's come up with the idea that the Amazon meant not breasted, meaning that they weren't breastfed. They weren't suckled by a wet nurse or another woman. And in fact, they were suckled by the mares that they rode. So first of all, we're going to start with geography. Well, where, where were they located? And the geography gives us quite a few clues. Well, Wonder Woman, uh, go back to Wonder Woman, she gives us the mysterious, uh, mysterious island of Themyscira. And uh, much like Atlantis and uh, Milton Keynes, no one really knows where it is. No one, no one can point to it on a map. But with the Amazons, Themyscira was thought to have been located on the south coast of the Black Sea. And it might be worth you, if you've got a chance to get a map, pausing this now, go and get yourself a map and locate or get up on Wikipedia, or wherever you are, have a look at where the Black Sea is, because where I'm going to discuss now it just makes it a bit easier if you've got some sort of way of referencing the various points and places. Now, the Black Sea to the Greeks was really quite exotic. I believe, I seem to remember the Greeks calling it the Euxine Sea, and that meant the Friendly Sea, and it wasn't really the Friendly Sea at all. It was it was really quite dangerous, but the Greeks wanted to refer to it to the, as the Friendly Sea because by referring it as the Friendly Sea, that made it nicer and the sea wouldn't get angry with you. Something you read about and might find within the Greek writings is there's a tension between the myth and what was real. And how do they bridge that? How do they manage that relationship? Herodotus was fantastic at it. He reports on the Amazons existing on the, the southern shores of the Black Sea. They're out to sea, but they're not great sailors. They get blown off course. And they end up on the Crimean Peninsula. And if, you've, if you're looking at the uh, Black Sea, look at the top and you've got that kind of diamond shape. That's the Crimean Peninsula. And they end up there. And they interbreed with the locals. They get set up with the locals. Uh, the Sarmatians, the Suramatai, as Herodotus calls them, Apologies of pronunciation. And their lineage goes all the way down. And that's what you've got. By Herodotus' time, that's why you've got these tribes in that part of the world. I suppose you call it Ukraine. And to the east of the Black Sea, in that part of the world, you've got these tribes who are very able horsemen. And the men and the women fight together. They are fighting on equal terms. Um, and, and if you look at the, the map... Um, you'll see that there's there's something called the Sea of Azov, and the Sea of Azov is a bit of body of water that's basically pinched off by the Crimean Peninsula. And from this, flowing northeast, you've got the River Don. And this is the sort of hotbed of female Scythian as well, because you've got the Scythians, you've got the Sarmatians, a lot of these sorts of tribes. That's where you find women who can fight. And we know this because we have proof there have been a number of kurgans which are burial mounds lots of these turn up with women and women are in them and there's no nothing unusual with that except they've been given weapons so they've they've got bows they've got axes they've got spears and then they start looking at the skeletons and if you've got any skyrim fans listening you'll love this one of them was found with a, a nasty arrow wound to the knee and others were found with battle wounds and you could see these on the skeletons they had sort of slash bows to the knees the legs the arms everything so these are women that fought now, if you can imagine, you've got stories of these warrior women. They ride horses, they, they fire bows and arrows, and within the Greek concept, you've got to make sense of that. And Herodotus does that, he bridges across, he says, this is how they get there. They get there because they get lost. They interbreed with the locals, and that's why their descendants are now these kind of crazy Scythians, Sarmatians, uh, all living in that area. And, and what I want to do now 
is go through some of the, the female warriors from antiquity. There are some notable absences because I wanted to do something a bit different because when I started doing my website, my vlogs, my podcasts, I wanted to give you something that you might not have heard before. Going all the way back, 16th century Egypt. Now the lady in question is, no, pronunciation is Ahotep, which A double H O T E P, Ahotep. She ruled Northern Egypt and was pretty much the all rounder. She's a great place to start. She acted as a regent when her husband died, and then when her son died in battle, she held the upper kingdom together in face of a number of internal and external uh, revolts. She died, and she lasted till when she was around 90. Her tomb was discovered and excavated in the 19th century, and they found three golden flies. A single golden fly was awarded for extreme valour. This is someone who was very, very consummate and expert, She'd obviously achieved a great deal in the, in the terms of the military capacity. Do I think she was sort of senior warrior princess? No, I don't think she led in terms of being there at the front line fighting. We do come to women who fight. I think these were more, I wouldn't say token by any standards, but these were awarded to her by her by her sons for respect for what she'd done for the kingdom, her people, her family, and everyone around her. We're going to move on now to someone who's a bit less. Yeah, I, I think this person's going to chime with a few people out there. We're going to go ahead to the 6th century BC, and Tomiris, uh, she had a tribe up against Cyrus, who I, I think you've probably heard of, a famous Persian king. Now, according to one story, Cyrus tricked the Massagetai, which was Tomiris's tribe. She was in charge, and they tricked her by the simple act of leaving some wine out. If you've got a nomadic tribe, they're not used to drinking wine. Left a load of wine out in an empty camp, you can imagine what happens next. And of course, then Cyrus pops up, and slaughters a bunch of them. Also takes Tomiris's son, takes him, and he ends up dying in captivity. Now, Tomiris is really, really irked about that, and she does one thing. Attacks, invades, and defeats uh, Cyrus after giving him a personal challenge. To killing him, she puts his head into a wineskin as a sort of sardonic, well done. Uh, we don't know if this is genuinely true, we're pretty certain that Tomaris existed. Tomaris, gotta like her. To the west in Sarmatia, and this is near the Black Sea, and in the second century BC, you have a certain queen called Amage, uh, A-M-A-G-E. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And she was having similar problems with, with men, uh, in men in power in particular, because her husband, who was the king, was pretty awful. And so she decided it's going to be the main woman. She was so good that she ended up like some sort of mafiodon, becoming very, very popular, very prominent, very important. And she has a, a nearby tribe, a nearby tribe come up to her and they do the whole, I won't do the, I won't do a Marlon Brando impersonation or anything like that, but she does the whole, yeah, I can help you guys out. You want me to help you out? You've got to do something for me. And they say, we're having this, this problem with this tribe. This tribe are raiding our lands. They're giving us all sorts of headaches. They're swearing, they're dropping litter. You've got to sort them out. Can you help me out? She agrees to. And the first thing she does, invoking the Wonder Woman spirit, writes a nice letter. Just writes a letter and says, look, can you stop doing this? The tribe, nah, they don't do, they don't do this. They, they respond in quite a nasty and uh, insulting way. Well, that's it really. She gets 120 of her men and she rides at breakneck speed. I think they said that she covered up 184 kilometers or something in, in two days or something ridiculous like that. We don't know if that's true. But she certainly makes an, a daring assault, a surprise attack on the palace. Gets in the palace, butchers everyone. Kills the prince who sent the letter in personal combat. That's pretty much mob activity right there. 
Now, around the same time, uh, the penultimate queen I'm going to deal with here was putting her money where her mouth was, or actually, uh, more accurately, her hair. Her name was Rodaguni, and she was based in Parthia, and she was apparently having a great bath, lovely time of it, and she had a rebellion crop up, as happened a lot. When you have in these big kingdoms, rebellions are occurring, not daily, but all the time. This is the paradox, is the larger or more successful you are, the more you can lose. Rodaguni says, I'm going to put this rebellion down. I'm going to do it so much that I'm not going to do anything with my hair until I do it. So my hair is just going to be what doing what the heck it wants until I crush the rebellion. And she rides out and duly crushes the rebellion. But what's, uh, what's notable here is the depictions of her after this event all show her with the crazy hair going out. And that's how you know who she is. I'm going to finish up now with, with one. And you're probably thinking it's going to be Boudicca or Boudicca, aren't you? And it's not. It's not because Boudicca has been done so many times. You know you know the story. The, the great thing about uh, Boudicca or Boudicca is that you can deliberately wind classicists and ancient historians up. And you can find them in any, any group, any venue. Just say uh, Boudicca. And one of them goes, it's pronounced Boudicca. But I think that we could look at other women as well. And this one, I think, was more successful because she faced up to the Romans and beat them, beat them at their own game. So we're going to go back and we'll just tie things up nicely. We're going to go back to Egypt. Now, we're looking at 30, around sort of 30 BC now. So way back, early Roman Empire, you got Augustus. I think he was Octavian at that point. I saw someone will pick that up. And it's Sudan. It's the Kushite kingdom. So it's just below Egypt. Egypt, as you may or may not know, was a grain basket. It was vital to keeping Rome well fed. So anything which threatened Egypt, anything which might destabilise it, was seen as a huge threat and a great priority for Rome. Step forward, Amanirinus. A-M-A-N-I-R-E-N-A-S. Amanirinus. And she was a queen who had a a drawn-out war, a five-year war between 27 BC and 22 BC. And she defeated them twice. She raided Egypt. She uh, nicked a load of stuff and just took it back with her. And one of them, one of the things she, she took back, apparently, was a statue of Augustus or Octavian. You read something and you think, this is brilliant, if it's true. She had this statue buried at the entrance to her palace so that she could just walk over Augustus every day. That's military psychology for you right there. Anyway, she kept beating them. And the Romans realised they weren't going to beat her, so they offered her a truce. And this truce was really favourable to her. So favourable, in fact, that Rome just let her get on with things. The one other thing you might want to know about is that she only had one eye, apparently. She was blind in one eye. And I do also wonder if this, we're talking psychology here, if this fed into the Roman fear of or respect of her. Because the only other great African general who had success against Rome and who had one eye was Hannibal. Yeah, first people always forget he was African. And she was African too. So there we go. There's a little link there. I don't know if this this must have played. Someone must have noticed that at the point and just thought, oh, hang on a sec. We we don't have a great track record against one-eyed generals from Africa. We're, we're not very good with them. So just give her what she needs and we keep Egypt safe. So I've finished up now and I'm conscious that you've, hopefully you've listened all the way through. If you have, thank you very much. I really hope you've enjoyed it. I've changed my style, been a bit looser. I don't know if you want to feedback on me and say, look, I, I really much more preferred it if it was when it was a bit more scripted. Um, or you might like this a bit more. Either way, I'm really learning. This is a brand new skill set. Very difficult to do when it's just you talking to a stuffed bear. 
if you've got any other things to say to me, tweet me. Um, thanks again for listening. I will speak to you soon. Until then, keep safe.